0: Hello, and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations, and about the theory, process, and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. Today's interview is Callum of The Role Easts, podcaster and streamer extraordinaire, and designer of the truly fabulous storytelling game Gondo, the life-saving magic of inventorying. Callum has been a long-time friend of the show and is a fantastic supporter of the indie scene in general, and so it was an absolute delight to return a long-overdue favour and interview him on Indeed pod. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're talking to Callum of the Royal East. Hi there Callum and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be welcome uh, on Yes Indeed. Uh, I've listened to a few episodes. It's been a while since I listened to one to be honest, but uh, I love your show and uh, I love your contribution to the community. Aww.
0: That's very sweet of you. Thank you we've got a pretty massive back catalogue now yeah uh, so yeah you should just go out there and listen to all of them
1: if you pass the point when you look at your back catalogue and you're like I won't even myself never ever re listen to all of that It's just too much for me <laughs> I used to do that the first second third year of the release at least up to the fourth probably I used to re-listen to my episode to revisit them but now I'm like Ugh.
0: I just <laughs> want to get those downloads up so yeah I'm, I'm always downloading my own episodes and listening that's
1: to why that. your numbers are so high and mine are so low because we were (laughs) discussing on another Discord. Everybody was exchanging their numbers and I was like I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> <But> I <I'm just laughs> can't believe that.
0: No, I don't get that high numbers. Uh, I'm only adding, I'm only adding one to that. <laughs> we've had a,
1: we've had a good introduction.
0: Would you like to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role playing game scene?
1: Yes, I'm Kalum from The released. East. I'm a proud Londoner. Uh, I moved to London in 2012. Uh, as you can tell from my accent, I come from, uh, I was born in a country where people speak French, but uh, I'm very much happy. Here now in london so i identify as a londoner i like it here in london i encountered a lot of very enthusiastic tabletop rpg fans and it inspired me to start first my own podcast the which was dedicated first to french-speaking role players here in london and then quickly i got in touch with clubs i started interviewing more people and it became several shows we have but the spirit is always to connect people across the channel across the pond and beyond thanks to their passion to tabletop role-playing games. And more recently, although not that recently anymore, I mean, a year ago, something like that, I published my first ever game, Paris Gondo, The Life-Saving Magic of Inventorying, And uh, yeah, I started the the big adventures of of being a a game designer.
0: We like to talk to designers on the show, but we like to talk to podcasters as well, because it's such an important part of the indie tabletop role-playing game scene, in my extremely humble opinion.
1: You know, it's one of the reasons why I designed my game. Is You know, I interviewed a lot of talented game designers, but I wanted to be interviewed too one day, so (laughs) 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 my plan is working.
0: I'd have interviewed you anyway, i interview anybody. Oh,
1: damn it. (laughs) Why did I bother?
0: (laughs) But... I really like Perry Gondo. We can talk about that in a little bit if you like. I'd sort of like to hear a little bit about the Role East. I mean you've mentioned it before and you've talked quite a lot about it, but you know, sort of we've we've gone from those quite early beginnings when you were doing all sorts of interesting kind of nerdy things, talking about role-playing games, but also like going to see films and, you know, chatting to people and so on, and I think that's really fun. Do you want to dig a bit more into like what you think your podcast is about and why you think it's good for the scene?
1: To move to London. (laughs) I also started the big adventures of completing additional studies at the University of Westminster. I was still living and working abroad. I would come here once per month with the Eurostar, but before I could join the university, at had to... I have a qualification in English called the TOEFL. Oh no, mine was the ILTS. Anyway, something like that. I used to listen to radio show, but I found podcasts from the BBC which helped me uh, enhance my English because it used to be even worse. And then I listened to the TRPG podcast and I found there was something missing compared to my own experience of tabletop RPG role playing. I find this, there's a lot of excellent shows. It's not a, a question of quality you know, on the contrary, but there's a lot of show. They find their niche and inward looking with that. So it can be or uh, the Grognard Files, which I love. Uh, I really find excellent. Or podcast about indie games or podcast about D and D and they tend to concentrate on that niche. And what my experience of tabletop role playing was that it was a hobby, which connected me to a number of different interests because uh, the people I met to tabletop role playing game, we started exchanging fantasy novels, uh, talking about shows and say, Oh, we would like to, really, mm. to be inspired by those things into our games, listen yeah. to music, even be invited and eat together. If one of us was into to baking cook and so on. And it was always part of my experience as tabletop RPG as something outward looking, you know, connecting things within a fabric. So I wanted to try to do a show which was more aimed towards that, aiming to connect people across different communities because that's also something I've noticed very excellent shows. They tend, especially after a while, to have their, their usual guest or their, their little troop of regulars. My challenge with the show is to try always to reach for, for new people. People absolutely don't know. Uh, I like to claim that I'm the least knowledgeable podcaster because I often have people on the show without knowing who they actually are. <laughs> they just happen to be in London or within my reach. And especially at the beginning, well, I was trying to, to connect tabletop role playing games to food. To Star Wars, James Bond, to different things, to traveling... And uh, I miss this, the very adventurous beginnings. I hope I will go back there at some point when I can travel uh, again and so on. I think it's still at the core, this idea of reaching outward for a number of things rather than sticking in your comfort zone.
0: As you said, you definitely met those aims like quite early on in your podcast and it always sounded very professional and fun and you were always talking to interesting
1: people. My next episode is with Bez and I'm currently editing it and I, I loved our conversation. Oh, wonderful. It was lovely uh, having her and meeting her finally because we cross each other at conventions and so on and we never had an opportunity to, to even have a proper chat. It's, it's my benefit, you know, so I sincerely enjoy sitting down with someone for an hour and a half with the excuse of a microphone uh, to talk with them and, and find out about their, their experience and their views.
0: I like as well that it's not totally focused on tabletop role-playing games and that, you know, you do speak to people about general geeky stuff as well i think that's really interesting because tabletop role-playing games incorporates quite a broad church of people you know there's a lot of people who are kind of only interested in it at the periphery or there's people who are interested you know at the very core of it and they make it a huge part of their identity cough like me there's a lot of other people who have different experiences of the scenes as well and i just think it's really interesting and then you kind of base that your your show if you like around the sort of london geek scene which is really cool because. I don't think there are that many extremely geographical podcasts
1: like that. Yes, and not at the same time because when I was mentioning troupe, and uh, I mean troupe in the sense of, you know, a theater troupe. Uh, Again, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but, uh, you know, you you take One Shot Network with James D'Amato, who are excellent. They quite focus, I think, on people they know and people who gravitate around Chicago and the improv scene over there. Yeah, it's Uh, true. The sphere, the booth. I'm not entirely sure which state in the US they are I'm um, part of the RPG Academy and most of the members there are in uh, in Ohio or somewhere uh, around there I think it's something People are not necessarily self-aware of. Mm. One question I enjoyed asking around was always, "Oh, do you know? Do you know a table-top or game from Spain or Italy, and so on?" And I realized that people were actually not wondering about that that much. You know, in a way, it was like, "Oh, yeah, we don't care about that because it's not important." Yeah, it's not important. But at the end of the day, actually. It's because you presume that everything comes from the U.S., Mm. including Mm. stuff which comes from the U.K., or you are not interested or exposed to things from other countries, uh, or you don't realize that the author of One Ring uh, is Italian. So, yeah, at the same time, it's very London-based, my show, and... For obvious reason with the, with COVID, it hasn't been possible anymore for a while. But, uh, one of the episodes I enjoyed the most recording were episodes I recorded in Washington, DC, where I traveled, uh, for a wedding of a friend, uh, I recorded an episode in a shop in Florence, Italy, uh, a very short segment in a shop in Denmark, a longer full episode I recorded in Barcelona in a Catalan role playing game club called Sans Negorats. And it's amazing with the podcast when you have a microphone it's such a good excuse to to say, "Hey, mm. you want to spend time with me and chat?" It started sort of with uh, a novelist called Amy Carter. She writes uh, young adult novels, and I remember she posted on Twitter also because it goes both ways: me traveling and sometimes travelers coming to to the US. Like James Amato, he came to London on his honeymoon, so I, I grabbed him when he came come over. But uh, yeah, Amy Carter, she's a, a novelist. I never re- heard of her work, I never read her work, and she posted on. Twitter, hey, someone wants to hang out for a coffee. And I say, yeah, I got a podcast. Would you like to be my guest? And she was, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, in other circumstances, I'm not sure she would have met a random middle aged man. complete stranger like that but uh i I had a very pleasant time and i I believe she did also and it's it's one of my favorite interviews it's it's just seizing the randomness of of things rather than following the seasons of the the kickstarter campaigns and so on which it's not a criticism again it's me doing my thing and trying to do something which is its own
0: absolutely i i love the way that it pans out and it feels like a really cosmopolitan way of doing it as well you know it's nice when you get guests that you're not aware of it kind of makes that london scene feel really exciting interesting and i'm really in favor of that
1: yeah i really love it and the reality also is that i'm taking advantage of a privilege sure not everybody would be happy to live in london and a lot of people are critical of london i especially love it you know it's a privilege to be in london which is a place from and to which a lot of people travel so it's nice to have this uh, at hand. Yeah. Nobody comes to Leeds. I'm repeatedly frustrated. I work in transport. Uh, people take a drink. Uh, if you are listening to my show, because I'm an architect, I work in urban design. I work in transport uh, on my bico- bingo card. Uh, but uh, I'm repeatedly <laughs> frustrated at how expensive it is to travel, uh, across the UK, ah, especially yeah. by train. Yeah. Uh, I'd really much so would like to come more often to Manchester, Leeds and so on.
0: You know, I do understand that it's, you know, not everybody. Has that opportunity, but it is nice that somebody has that opportunity. <laughs> Can talk to all these cool people and make us aware of like what's going on.
1: I'm sharing. I'm trickling down the economy of <laughs> TTRPG global fans coming to london
0: so you were talking about how sometimes you have people on your show who you've never met before and you've never spoken to and you've never heard of or anything and I, actually i sort of share that experience because quite often i haven't read or heard about the games that i'm interviewing people about but perigonda is an exception it's one of the only games <laughs> <laughs> on yes indeed part of the last couple of years that i have actually played so do you want to give us a little bit of an elevator pitch as to what Paris Gondo, the life-saving magic of inventorying, is all about.
1: So first of all, the S uh, you're supposed to pronounce it is Paris Gondo. Oh, come on. It's Marie Kondo. (laughs) Yeah, but, uh, you know, I didn't want it. So you you spilled the beans. uh, This (laughs) game is inspired by Marie Kondo and the shortest elevator pitch of the game, Paris Gondo, the life-saving magic of inventorying, is Marie Kondo, but for murder (laughs) hobo. So...
0: That is a perfect elevator pitch. Who wouldn't want to go with that?
1: A lot of, not not quite alliteration, but uh, still some nice rhymes there. But yeah, the, the concept is quite simply, I was introduced to Mary Kondo and I thought it was quite, she was quite interesting, although, and uh, I read her book, "The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying." That's actually the title of one of her books. I read that, and what I tell uh, each time on interview, uh, there's a section at the beginning. She she has quotes from her clients, and I thought it would be reading the quotes. I couldn't help because my mind works this way. I always like to distort things in a. From uh, especially serious things, I move them slightly into uh, a realm which makes them absurd. And the quote from a client I told, if you start thinking about who is giving that quote as famous heroes for fantasy adventures, uh, they become absurd. Like there was one who was (laughs) saying, wow, I would never have thought that getting rid of just one thing would change me so much. And I couldn't help to think that's uh, Frodo Baggins (laughs) talking. Or be- be baggins. So yeah, the idea of the parody uh, came, and quite quickly, uh, an idea for how to mechanize that uh, and base it on an exchange of cards. And you got this game, which is based, the, the concept is you start the adventure where most of the dungeon crawling adventures end. At the very end of the dungeon, you already reached the end, you already defeated the boss of the dungeon. Uh, you got some loot now. Brilliant! Are uh, you gonna create that loot? You're gonna roll stats for this loot, and you're gonna reflect those stats. Gonna try to imagine what they represent, and then will come the time to come go back home uh, to engage on your journey home. But you have to decide what to bring home or what to throw away. Marie Kondo style. What spark joy? If it spark joy, <laughs> this brand new plus one magic sword, uh you should keep it. But if it doesn't spark joy, even if it's a plus one magic sword, you should throw it away because on the way back if you carry too much there are more chances that you will die on the journey home if you keep (laughs) objects which are more useful you, you are more likely to survive the journey home but if you keep objects which are useful but maybe not as emotional to you that don't spark joy as much well, maybe you make it home, but you will never feel fully fulfilled till the rest of your mm. days as you would have if you have yeah. brought home. Yeah. Something which might be completely useless, <laughs> but it belonged to that big hero you were a fan of.
0: What it strikes me as, as well as being Marie Kondo, the RPG, but is the Pathfinder encumbrance system, the RPG. I feel like in crunchy games, particularly, inventorying is not a mechanic that people want to particularly engage with. I think that's changed quite a lot in recent Recent years with like the OSR movement leaning a bit more into having very, very limited capacity for carrying things. But this is certainly a really, really interesting take on that.
1: So I made my sales pitch at uh, Dragon Me to a friend who's a big fan of role playing games. He buys a lot of role playing games. When I explained my game, he replied, Ah, oh, I swore to never buy a game with an encumbrance system. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Yeah, okay, I get that, but. <laughs> That's all there is in this one. It's not... <laughs>
0: That's the whole game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not
1: GURPS or Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> and you've got rules for Everything you know, uh, shopping list kind of list of uh, of systems to to simulate uh, different stuff. No, that's it. That's <laughs> the game. So it's not a crunchy game with encumbrance rule. It's a it's a story game, very Ooh, light. The game is the encumbrance rule. It, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so t- to be clear, so what you roll when you create your object, the stats are the encumbrance, of course. Everything goes on a scale from one to six. The encumbrance, the usefulness, the emotion, and you roll also to know what's the affiliate class of the object. So the object can be for you got your six classic dungeon crawling classes, which are wizard, rogue, cleric, bard fighter and barbarian. Uh, the barbarian can carry more, the wizard is the one who can carry the least, uh, but the wizard starts with the best starting inventory because you start with objects or at least you, you arrive at the end of the d- dungeon before the loot with a bunch of objects So, but you will have to decide what you need to, to get rid of or what to keep.
0: It's a good game. I think the elevator pitch should make people want to play it, but in case you're not sold listen to me when I tell you that it's a lot of fun to play. I think we generated something like a French 16th century armoire in the game I played with you and somebody carried that home and um, I think used it defensively
1: (laughs) what I find fascinating is how so it's a gemless game but uh, full disclosure personally I'm not a big fan of gemless game what have you done The GMLS game, I came to being self-aware of what you like and what you like least. Again, it's not being critical of GMLS games, it's being aware of your own taste. Like, uh, recently I played the first session of Blood Feud, uh-huh. and it was very interesting, but still Not quite my thing, but very interesting. So I'm very happy I'm going to play a second session to close our arc and so on. But what I found out is that what I like is GM-less games which are very structured. So in the comedic realm, I highly recommend Guillaume Gentil's Sonia and Conan versus the ninja oh yeah because it's more multi-game master game than a gmless game and in the same vein I keep recommending becoming a game of heroism and sacrifice a dangerous game I highly recommend this one but yeah uh, in that one you play the three faith and they're just one player again it's more a multi game master game than gmless
0: i'm start of getting an appreciation of why people say gm full games rather than gmless games because certainly with something like dream Skew, i don't know if you've played that style of game where everybody is sort of a gm rather than there is no gm and i guess that's why it's gm full rather than GM. just as an aside
1: the metaphor i came to to develop for me was you know G, some gmless games are like football or soccer and the GM game, I appreciate more are more like baseball uh, in the sense that in soccer, you play as a team, but you have this sort of social interaction to asking people to pass the ball to you. And there's a lot of pressure when you have the ball. It's quite chaotic. While in baseball, you play for the team, but you have specific things to do at specific times of the game. OK, you're going to hit the ball with the bat. You're going to run, going to throw the ball. You're going to catch the ball. It's very structured what you're supposed to do at yeah. some point of the game. And the thing yeah. is with fully more freeform GM-less game is that it, it reminds me too much of my work. Try or worse, my studies as an architect when we had to, oh, I've got an idea, I've got an idea too. And you start defending your idea, you try to keep, give room to the ideas of the other, but you need some kind of structuring element or leadership. And I always end up in those game, with very few exception fields. Feeling like, mm. oh, I feel like, yeah. hey, did I impose yeah. my idea to the others? Did I push too hard f- for what I thought was interesting? Or on the contrary, I'm frustrating being like, oh, I wish I had pushed my ideas more. But because the structure is not there to, to give the spotlight, yeah, that's where my frustration comes from.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I want to I come back around to that in a bit. But we want to finish talking about, I'm going to have to say, Paris Gondo.
1: The life-saving magic of inventory. The, the whole title. Yeah, I know, but that's
0: a lot of extra words. <laughs> I, I want to finish talking about it because, you know, it's it's a really interesting game. It's really, it's really interesting to, to play it with other people because I, I think people have a strange relationship with objects in role-playing games. And it's a really interesting relationship um, because for one reason or another, it's always kind of like in the big fantasy heartbreaker games objects are the thing that people are really interested in yeah like look at cypher system for example exactly it's a game revolving around magic items basically and i think people have this fascination with them and like not wanting to give them up
1: i don't know if there is
0: something to that that it makes this game particularly appealing to play
1: yeah you know what i find interesting with with this game which i created <laughs> Valid. except the fact that you have a class which sort of defines with what the object you will find uh, which one the, might be more or less interesting for you and you got a maximum encumbrance so you got a class and you got a maximum encumbrance which is the maximum you can carry and beyond that you've got no stats the whole stats you will use to survive on the journey home and to find out whether things happen in a good or bad way is entirely up to your inventory so Mm. it's the the total you make from the objects which uh become your your stats there's no except the maximum encumbrance there's no strength there's no intel or none of that it's strictly the stat from your objects which you you factor so you are the objects you you carry and it's one of the the turns of the game so i ask at the beginning of the game to okay describe to me sure you're a wizard but it's a template, it's an archetype. Use your imagination, you can be any type of wizard you want. And uh, I remember a player who made a accounting wizard. <laughs> and he described this first level spell book as a, a ledger with, with uh, <laughs> receipts and, and stuff like that. Uh, That's so much in fun. It. Yeah. And then there's the moment after people swapped objects and so on, because the, the objects are actually cards. And so you ex- exchange them and it works, it works online via Miro, uh, thankfully, but people exchange cards. And then I say, okay. Now we got all our final inventory. Tell me, it's a life changing experience, you know, finding some loot and achieving a bigger uh, epic adventure like that and choosing objects to part from or, 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 to keep. Tell me, what's your new, what's the new you? And then suddenly you got the accounting with a We said, well, I gave up. Uh, I decided to retire. So now I've got this magical Hawaiian shirt and sunglasses. And for some reason, i also carrying uh, a, I don't know. I, to be honest, it's difficult to remember the 35 games I played. Yeah, it's, it's transformative. The idea. So I really lean into the concept of, you know, well-being influencers, you know, going a bit beyond Marie Kondo herself. The, the idea of okay, You picked object. It changed you. You're, you're a new person now. What's the new person? What's your new identity? And it's a good excuse. <laughs> for the player yeah. to re-describe their adventure in a in a very uh, interesting way. Yeah,
0: that is interesting. <laughs> it's interesting.
1: Do you remember what you played?
0: Can't, I'm sorry. I only remember this enormous French dress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun game. Uh, I would really like to play it in person. I think one of the things about it is that you, you spent quite a long time itch funding it. We've just come out of Zine Month when there's been a lot of itch funding going on. How was your experience? Now you're at the other side of it.
1: Well, I'm still in it. So, you know, uh, with what happened with Kickstarter recently, there's been a lot of discussion whether or not each year, each funding could be an alternative to Kickstarter. And I really enjoy each funding. And I'm happy I did not do a Kickstarter because I think it would have been too stressful for me. However it's it's not a good comparison I think because I think each funding has strengths and weaknesses and specificities which are very different from Kickstarter I think other platforms I haven't checked Game game Found uh, but uh, there's uh, one platform called Game on Tabletop which is very popular with tabletop RPG fans in France and Germany and it's slowly growing uh, among English speaking things so I recommend to go check out Game on Tabletop it's much more similar to Kickstarter trending i find this more of an iterative nature to it a more diy nature also, which is linked to the community yeah, at hio and it was very fitting for me so i'm a bit of a completionist so when i published my game on Ichio. It was already fully written, it was already f- fully uh, proofread, and it had alwe- already been revised by my editor, Chris S. Sim, who's a professional editor. So the text was finalized. So I, at the time, I did not seize the iterative development aspect of HIO. Uh, but still, for the funding, I did. So I published a version which was just the text, digitally only. And it helped me gather interest and start reaching out to people and gather a little bit of money, which uh, allowed me to invest it in a graphic designer and then purchase the art from the artist Body Artly. So I did it step by step. Then I translated the game from English to French because I'm fluent in French. So I published it. In French without the art and then later in French with the art. But when I published it, I started the, the currently ongoing Each funding uh, campaign, which probably going to last a long a long time uh which will go towards translating the game to japanese because Kondo, but also because i grew up uh in a country which was very very exposed to japanese animation and manga uh way Mm. more than the uk and the us yeah Uh, so it really influenced me and uh, i always felt a, a strong interest towards japan so i want you know the idea of being able to translate My Gate to Japanese and share it with the TRPG community over there uh, would be absolutely amazing. Uh, And also the game itself, which I did not mention, so the book of the game itself is inspired. Uh, So I was made aware of table talk RPG games, so Japanese role-playing games, through the the Kickstarter campaign for Shinobigami, the translation to English. And there was a video uh, from uh, Kotodama Heavy Industries, the publisher, explaining... The format of the book, which is typical of Japan, which is you don't only have the rules of the game in that book, like in a typical uh, Western role-playing game as we used to, actually it's fronted by a replay, which is a full game sessions in text form. So it's it's like Critical Role in text form. Hmm. It's not an example of play. It's not a made-up session which I created in my head and started. You know, which personally I, I remember those from uh, Star Wars D6. Yes. Uh, they were interesting, but they were a bit clunky. No, it's actually a session I played with Ursidice, Dice excellent game designers. Jane Ermiston, uh, who also do uh, doubles in-, in game design, I think. Yes, they do. And Blue, uh, very enthusiastic TTRPG fans. So we played that session The the 4th and Simon also uh, we played that session. I recorded the audio, then I transcribed it. It was very lightly edited, edited still, but lightly. And it's, it's much more alive. And like people listen to actual plays in audio form. Uh, it happens that in Japan, people have been doing that in text form, but way, way before the internet was a thing, uh, uh in uh, the, the zine format, photocopied, printed themselves. People would even buy, like people download. An episode of Critical Role, uh, people would buy a transcript from a game session from a group of players they really like and and read it and enjoy it. And they might play the game or not, just like actual play. So I I got that with Paris Gondo.
0: Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. I'm hearing more and more about the Japanese tabletop role-playing game scene and about, you know, more international scenes in general. And it seems to me as though the balance of what games are big in other countries is really, really different to what it is in America and Britain. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Like Call of Cthulhu for instance is really really big in Japan and quite big in uh, in Brazil and other parts of South America as well.
1: It's the biggest in Japan uh, and not only the biggest but uh, apparently according to Dr. Linardi uh, who's uh, the head of the Call of Cthulhu line uh, at Chaosium If you follow TRPG fans in Japan, so I say I keep saying TRPG because it's one T, it's it's how they it's their hashtag. If you want to follow them, you'll see the like the hits of sales and so on, and it's three or four. It's like D and D for us. Their despair. It's funny if you if you use the Twitter function to translate tweets from Japanese RPG fans from the indie scene, you will see the same despair about Call of Cthulhu over there that we have here. (laughs) <laughs> about Dungeons & Dragons. That's so funny. If you want to have a window into Japanese t- tabletop RPG, Montreux at Melolibur. So at M-E-L-O-L-I-B-U-R. Uh, Montreux is a Swedish tabletop RPG enthusiast, but he speaks fluently Japanese. He should be the one translating Paris Gondo when I do have the money. And he tries to be a platform's posting in Japanese about what's going on in Japan and also posting indie tabletop role-playing games about them in Japanese, uh, games from w- w- the Western scene to introduce uh, fun Japanese ones. Good and person to know. For people are way. aware, you're like, well, what, what can I do with the... I, I cannot follow someone who posts in Japanese. What's the point? Twitter's got uh, a function. If you click on the tweet, you can have the tweet translated and it works quite well, at least on mobile. So it's a, it's a fun way to follow what's going on over there. Like Cthulhu, can I you? just see that Cthulhu is spelled K-U-T-U. L.U. in Japan, it's much more convenient. Apparently, the main demographic of players over there are young women. And replays play a big part in that because those actual play in text form of Call of Tulu, Call of Tulu worked Especially well as an adventure to read, like you would read your, your, your all we roll podcast adventure. It's kind of dark. It's kind of, it's it's inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. So this uh, thing, which is not a game, not uh, a light novel, but is in the same pocket format as a light novel in, in Japan, again, printed on cheap paper is part of the thing which made Call of Tulu the, the big one over there.
0: I think that's really interesting. I don't know if people in the states are as aware of like what other role playing game scenes look like, especially because because in Britain, I think <laughs> I know they're not. Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> is still not as big as it is in the states. Like if you go to a role playing game bookshop in Britain, as far as they exist, which like I'm not really sure they do. Yeah, there's a lot of Dungeons and Dragons there, but there's also a lot of like I don't know, Warhammer Fantasy, and I think that's a bit of more of a classic game to have played rather than dnd is your first game so that's interesting
1: that's part of what is frustrating with interactions online where you know the u.s demographic is well not overrepresented because they represent a, a large number of people but the, the proportion of people on twitter who are from the u.s and whatever topic you look into can be music can be politics you are you are swamped just by the, the sheer number of, uh, U.S., uh, based, uh, people, uh, that you find there. So when you're online, it's, you got the, this big thing. And within the U.S. audience, DND has got a disproportionate place. And, you know, the, the, the case of Japan is interesting because what I keep saying to DND fans is that, you know, I like DND. Um, my favorite one is D&D 4th edition I find 5th edition okay but it could be absolutely any game in that position it would be a source of huge frustration because it's just overwhelming the scale of it so if I was in Japan I would probably be bored so much above Coloc it and could, you could take Star Wars D6 and it would be the most popular game ever I, I would be sick of it <laughs> uh, I, I really long for and it's frustrating in the discourse that it's like oh yeah but D&D is always been the biggest and so on so first of all it's not been the biggest all the time including in the US when TSR went bankrupt vampire was a big thing probably as big if not bigger so outside of the US it was even bigger and outside of the U.S., you've got in in Germany the biggest game for a long time was the Dark Eye. Mm. The Dark Eye was also quite popular in France as Le Noir. But in France, you had a much more balanced situation where D&D was just one among twelve games which were popular in the 90s. It was it was not the D game. You again, you had Vampire, but you had Nephilim, you had all this bunch, and you know, tying back to my podcast, that's what I was trying to do also to try to to connect because it's frustrating as you say, it's really nice that communities like RPGC got the ball rolling in terms of making themselves aware globally, or at least in our little bubble uh, on Twitter of TTRPG enthusiasts, but it's still very difficult to have a view from different communities in different countries and RPGC has the advantage that their vehicular language is English. I think that's what enabled them Mm. to be so visible in our English-speaking platform because they speak a number of different... I'm not from Southeast Asia but from my understanding they speak a a number of different languages and they use English with one another and they are a lot of people in Southeast Asia. So if you compare that with people who speak French, uh, they're much less of them. And then when they communicate with one another, they do so in French. So the French scene is its own TTRPG scene of yeah. which you will, you won't be aware at all because they communicate in French, uh, with each other mostly and. Well, yeah, that's no, and right. Then they yeah. translate something in English, but it's difficult, you know, to to reach out uh, the English speaking audience because there's a lot of competition, if, even if there's a lot of potential customer. And why bother? It's difficult, you know, to do stuff in two different languages. Mm. I tr- started trying that with Paris Gondo it was a bit depressing because I realized oh, actually if I wanted to be successful with the French speaking audience, despite being a French native French speaker myself, I would just need to invest as much time and energy as I already invested with the English speaking audience. And that's exhausting. So I am a bit aware of the French-speaking TTRPG scene, which I don't follow closely. Once per year, I, I know I participate to a online convention called Cyberconve, but otherwise I'm really unaware of the, the intricacies and all the, the stories that are going on over there. Mm. And then you, you've got Germany. I don't know nothing about what is going on in Germany. There are so many other countries... Spain, well, I met some Spaniards and some Catalans, so I know a few things and I dabbled in Spanish. Portuguese, uh, there's a lot of very uh, enthusiastic Portuguese TTRPG fans, so I know a tiny bit, but then, the, then what is going on, uh, what is going on in North Africa? What is going on in Russia? Uh, do we have? fellow ttrpg f- fans in in ukraine and russia and and all these other languages it's very difficult but because by definition the it's a language-based bubble
0: it is i think especially because it's a lot to do with communication and about that sort of level of the intimacy you have with other players i think that's maybe one of the things that's most interesting about language and role-playing games and i think this is something we sort of touched upon when i did my rpgc series last year is that there are a massive number of languages just in the Philippines, and people's relationships to games depend on what languages they play them in. And gosh, I mean, isn't that just fascinating? I think that's so cool.
1: It's funny as a hobby. I know the two of us are quite engaged online, and even if we're not engaged with everything, we, we do follow a lot of the discourse. But when you're on Twitter, it looks all very important, and even without. Within just the English-speaking world, within even only just the UK, we have absolutely no way to read what's actually going on with the TTRPG community as a whole, because who's on Twitter... So they're mostly, I would say, a fraction of mainly game masters. So it's not even the majority of game masters, and the game master are like, what, at best, one player, one person out of four, TTRPG practitioner, a bit more maybe uh, when we talk about the indie scene. But I don't think our online conversations are representative at all of what is going on as soon as you you get offline? And by definition, it's quite fascinating how it's bubble. You know, it's the bubble of that group of friends who met at the university and keep on playing. It's that bubble of the French speaking tabletop RPG fans of London. It's The bubble of reminds me. I should try to interview them. There's a. There used to be at least a Polish speaking tabletop RPG club in London, and you got role playing. Got different clubs, and then you got all those people playing. I quote on their own, just with people they, they seek out and they find and they play together. But there's no, there's no grand survey. <laughs> of no. Even running a survey of their interest and so on is awfully difficult. And every year we look at the Roll20 stats to have an appreciation of what games are the most popular or growing or if the, the hegemony of the ND is weakening a tiny bit. But that's Roll20. <laughs> even most people who play online don't use it.
0: Yeah, exactly. That and, and principally aimed at, you know, the sort of tactical board games like Dungeons and Dragons. It's going to be a skewed opinion. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. And like I think one of the things that we really ought to take away from this conversation is that there is no tabletop role-playing game scene there are only several scenes which are composed primarily of people who don't really play outside of their own
1: groups. Not to scare people, but it's like a terrorist organization, but good.
0: <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not a terrible... I mean,
1: wolves and uh, I was sort
0: of thinking it, it was a little bit more like individual prayer groups within a church, which is maybe a <laughs> slightly less, less terrifying way of putting it, but that's also speaking outside of my wheelhouse, so yeah. <laughs> I'll move on from that. So we are nearly we are nearly at the end of the time that we have allotted, which is a shame. Time which is a shame because one of the things I just wanted to briefly. Told you touch you should is,
1: record ninety minutes and make two episodes with all your games. should
0: record ninety minutes. It's one of the things you've mentioned it already, but you are you are an architect, you work in transport, you work in built environments. I am a flood risk engineer. I work in the built environment, essentially. I don't know really if there are that many people I can think of who are game designers who do work in built environment. I feel like a lot of them are in other that's built environment focused.
1: I recorded an episode with Grant Talwitt about uh, The Fast and Furious because one of my side shows is the RPG Academy Film Studies. We review a movie together through the lens of tabletop RPG and because, of course, we go on uh, sidetracks. Grant was saying that the he didn't think there were a lot of movies with an architect as the main character and i started a thread on twitter of all the movies i know featuring an architect some colleagues from the built environments got out of the woods <laughs> saying oh <laughs> i think it's interesting because
0: in some respects like i feel like the skill set that i have for tabletop role playing games and for tabletop role playing game design actually matches quite well with the skills for built environment. Yeah.
1: You write reports, you, you pick pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is how I sort of got into tabletop role playing game editing to start with, because I'm like quite good at editing technical documents, but. <laughs> You know, it's about information flow. It's about appropriate communication. And ultimately, especially with architecture, it's about design and making something look attractive. It just strikes me as odd that maybe there aren't that many designers out there who do come from this background.
1: I think we should ask around. I mean, again, we, we have no view. We, we should conduct a, a survey You're right. <laughs> of what's the actual job of uh, all those people. Do, do you know the job of most people, you know, even all, in all circles?
0: Maybe individually, I might know a handful of what people's day jobs are, if they are not full-time game designers i think that's really interesting as well because like some of them do really interesting jobs but don't talk about them and some of them do really boring jobs and talk about them a lot (laughs) (laughs) i know quite a lot of people who work in retail or you know work in restaurants or other you know client facing roles like that which are not at all my kind of wheelhouse i don't know maybe it's there's no correlation but i think that it would be interesting there's to There's
1: definitely a good set of transferable skills. Uh, I, actually, this morning, uh, one of the, the associates uh, at my practice sent me a message because at the moment, uh, I'm working on a lot of projects because there's not a lot of work, but there's little jobs to do here and there. And so it was like... <laughs> Can you use InDesign? I was like, boy, do I publish <laughs> I like, yeah, my own game. And usually, when we have a graphic designer in our practice and they create a template, I'm like, they don't even use styles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very frustrated by that. I use InDesign better than most graphic designer. I'm Ooh, not a graphic designer. I'm not a graphic designer, but in terms of properly using InDesign, I'm much better than most of those I've run into mm. in the built environment. Yeah. I mean yeah, we're yeah, also yeah. talking about Kind of sad graphic designers. If you end up in an engineering practice and you do the graphic design for the report, usually they're not entirely fulfilled and they got a side gig or passion where they can really engage into proper graphic design rather than the blue, gray, A4 (laughs) word report that is the standard in the UK.
0: I can't believe you'd say that. I'll have you know that the graphic designers at my firm work very hard (laughs) and produce beautiful things every year. (laughs) That's great. But I don't know if they feel fulfilled about their job, you know.
1: Some practice are more keen on it, and, and that's great. But, you know, I've run into quite a few very good graphic designers visually. Uh, aesthetically but again using the InDesign, design that they, they, they were, didn't have the curiosity it's like architect is the same you see there's there's a software called autocad or photoshop mm. and they, they just use the surface of it and they they waste so much time not using functions which would save time
0: this is the takeaway message from this then you know learn the deep dives on InDesign and affinity and then uh you you can amaze architects
1: Follow a training. When you want to do something, please Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's someone who can do it. Yeah, just do that. Please Google. Or do I do that? If you want to do that, I'm pretty sure that whatever tool you're using, someone thought of it before you and they found a a faster way to do it. You just need to invest 10 minutes of your time to save days of your time. uh...
0: Or do it the way i do it which is invest days of your time to save 10 minutes of your time yeah. yeah so callum do you want to tell us where we can find you on the
1: internet so you can find me everywhere at rollist pod so that's at r-o-l-i-s-t-e-s-p-o-d you see I, I was already terrible with branding because i picked a word people couldn't spell by the way rollist is uh french it's got something that i haven't found in most other languages french has a word for tabletop RP. PG practitioner and that's Role East. That's co- that's a role player. So you can find me with that on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook if you type it there. If you type the Role East you, you should find me. You can find me on TikTok. I haven't posted there uh, for a long time but you, you can still find ridiculous things. Featuring me uh, over there. Uh, <laughs> Rollspot.com right? is my website. You will find i got a beautiful website. Which uh, works at the moment. Not very well with SEO. That's an expression I've learned. Search engine. Uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, it works very poorly with that. But the, the website is beautiful. And there's everything I do over there. Uh, there you can find my. Join my newsletter. And if you want Paris Gondo, good news, bad news at the moment, (laughs) I need to reprint them uh, because the last 20 copies were purchased by a very nice, friendly indie TTRPG online store based in Canada. So if you're in the US or Canada or around there, you can order physical copies, the box set of *Paris Gondo with the cards, which are dry erase, with a pen, even with pebbles, which reminds me of my mother. Maybe they will remind you of your mother too. And uh, play ads of different kind are uh, there. It's, people are seems quite happy with the content uh, of that sort of DIY box set. It's all available at the web store of Ratty and Cantity. So yes, go purchase. So they (laughs) purchased the last 20 copies. So I'm out of them. I need to, I sent yesterday uh, one of the last books, a uh, standalone I had to Guam. I'm so happy someone from Guam ordered uh, one of my books. Hey, that's cool. So if you really cannot wait for it, even if you're in the UK, go order them for, from Ratty and Cantati, and maybe they will order more for me.
0: And um, please do, because it's, it's a great game. It's a lot of fun to play. Can confirm 10 out of 10 would do it again. So, yes. I guess all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for coming on yes indeed pod and you know, good luck getting the Japanese version of Paris Gondo hedge funded.
1: Yeah, twenty eight percent at this point. Slowly but surely we're getting there. If it takes ten years, it takes ten years, but uh, yeah, it will happen. We'll just have to revise the the goal with inflation for my my translator. <laughs> Montreux, by the way. Oh yeah, if you go to itch.io, you will find Paris Gondo as well, and you will find one page RPGs which I translate. It from English to French, sometimes to French to English, and even sometimes from Spanish to English. So uh, games like Shakespeare in Rome Amazing. or The Feather and the Butterfly were two games I translated to English. So you can enjoy them there for free.
0: Amazing. Well, we appreciate your work. Thank you very much. And thank you again
1: for coming on Yes Indeed Pod. Thanks for having me. And uh, wow, is that a beautiful music I start hearing coming? <laughs> Uh <laughs> yeah I sent it to you
0: <laughs> thanks for listening and thanks again to Calum for the interview as always you can find all of the links in the episode description Calum's game Periscondo is our book club PDF this month so if you're subscribed to our Patreon at that level look out in your inbox for your free copy Next week, I'm talking to Tony Vazinda of Plus One EXP about through the void. and about being the Atlas-like titan supporting the indie TTRPG scene. Tony was enormously instrumental in making Zine Month such a fantastic success, and Plus One EXP is an amazing creative endeavour too, so I know you'll enjoy this chat. Tune in in two weeks to find out more. This week's episode is sponsored by C.M. Lowry of Beyond Cataclysm Books. Tyrannosaur Inside is a monstrous quest inside a giant T-Rex. Created by C.M. Lowry, previous author of A Set of Scrubs, and You Have No Authority Here, a passive-aggressive Parish Council RPG based on the Jackie Weaver incident. Tyrannosaur Inside is a point-crawl adventure, designed for use either as a one-shot or to easily drop into any campaign you already have going. It's going to be available with both Merkborg and D&D 5th edition stat blocks, so you can use it in lots of systems with only a little adaptation. There are umpteen T-Rexes inside the T-Rex, an elegant tea room, mind-controlled laser rampages, disgusting intestines, a brain-meltingly loud beating heart, untold riches, and of course the opportunity to catch a crafty roll-up off a lazy security guard. Tyrannosaur Inside is an intentionally, explicitly disability-aware adventure with consultation by Jacob Wood from Accessible Gaming Quarterly. There are also contributions from Grant Howitt and Gareth Hanrahan. Tyrannosaur Inside is funding now on Kickstarter and Itch simultaneously, giving everyone the option that you feel most comfortable with. Check it out and follow at cmlowryauthor on Twitter for updates. Last month, we racked up a huge number of new supporters, and so this week I'd like to thank all of the people who signed up, or helped to spread the word about our subscriber tribe. And as usual, I'd like to thank some new and some old supporters, Hassan Yongdi, Chris Lowry, Sam Armstrong, Georgie Batts, Samantha Lee, Jack Blair, and Peter Ike. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do what we do without you and you, yes you can get a regular shout out and joyful thanks too if you go to patreon.com/yesindeedpod and sign up today. You'll get access to our Discord server where we can hang out and chat and even join monthly editing streams and the Yes Indeed Pod book club. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me, so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene which will make it a healthy and inclusive place for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly, you can always help out by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcasts, or by donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at yesindeedpod, that's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is taken from Be Quiet by Yatzar from the Free Music Archive, released under Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 International License. Thanks, Yatsar. Until next time, remember, does indie need you? Yes, indeed.